Welcome to Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 156. In this episode, we're talking about disability in the Greco-Roman world and the New Testament with Dr. Louise Gosbell. Dr. Gosbell is Principal of Mary Andrews College in Sydney, Australia. She serves on several boards and committees of organisations in the disability space, such as Embracing Ministries in Canberra, Australia, and is a member of the Core Council on the Institute on Theology and Disability in the US. She's the author of The Poor, The Crippled, The Blind and The Lame, Physical and Sensory Disability in the Gospels of the New Testament, published by Moore Seebeck. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Grace Emmett, Dr. Chris Porter, and myself, Stephanie Kate Judd. Well, guys, that was quite a tour de force. Um, I really enjoyed that conversation. I enjoyed just hearing Louise go do a deep dive into both um, particular texts uh, in, in the New Testament, but also um, zooming out and doing some of the landscape contextual setting um, work to help us better understand and better read those texts in, in the Gospels. What were your reflections on that conversation? Oh, there's lots of things I sort of want to pull out as highlights. I, I love the breadth in terms of the approach that she's bringing, looking at biblical texts in particular, um, but then also doing that sort of um, uh, the bridging to the sort of pastoral side in terms of thinking about how does this, how does a model of inclusion apply within Christian communities and how does she translate some of that academic work into that setting? Um, I think I particularly appreciated the way that she um nuance the fact that disability is not static so you know what does it mean to think about disability in a modern context what does it mean to think about that in an ancient context what's the distinction between um an impairment and the fact that um a society itself can be disabling that it has a disabling effect that there's not necessarily something inherent about an impairment that makes it disabling um so i just found that clarification really useful particularly then as a lens for coming to look at particular biblical passages yeah, I really liked uh, that engagement with disability, not just as something at arm's length, um, as is so often the case in with academic study, as a lived experience, uh, as well as a sympathetic experience, uh, where she is both drawing from her own experience of disability, as well as her experience of working with people uh, with disability, uh, and then seeing what happens uh, in the text. So it's not reading it back into the text uh, as much as it is uh, using that to inform a reading of the texts. Uh, and so I, I really find, found that uh, a great engagement uh, and a great one to model, uh, especially if, if someone's coming to a text like these. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Louise Cosball. Well, Louise, thank you so much for joining us on The Two Cities. It's so good to have you here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Louise, um, I think that's something that we've observed is that most people who come to disability theology, disability studies, have a have a personal reason as to why they've started that journey. Could you share with us some of how you have come to this space? 
Mm, sure. Uh, so it was quite a few years ago now, uh, I had finished up a degree in theology, a Bachelor of Theology, and uh, the head of the theology department said to me, you know, you're a really good student, I think you should go on to uh, consider doing an honours year, it's a short 12 to 15,000 word thesis, um, but you'd need to really think about what you want to do, what you want to write about, and I can vividly remember thinking, what can I possibly write about that 2,000 years of biblical scholars haven't already written, you know, a thousand times over? But it was really interesting because it was only a couple of days later in the middle of all this pondering that I received a phone call from my mother-in-law and she was quite um, distressed. So my uh, husband has a brother with Down syndrome and he was, uh, he was a foster baby, so he came to live with them when he was two weeks old. So John was given up by his birth parents. They didn't want a baby with a disability. And he came to live with my in-laws as a foster, uh, stayed for two weeks, stayed for two months, <laughs> stayed for two years, you know, eventually was adopted by the family. So by this time, John was in his late teens and he'd been involved in their local church community for a number of years, just handing out bulletins at the door, welcoming people as they came into church, carrying in candles for liturgy. But a new minister started at their church at this time and rang my mother-in-law and said, John needs to stop uh, all of the ways that he's been contributing to the church and not able to serve any longer because his belief was that someone with an intellectual disability doesn't have the capacity to understand the gospel and so should, shouldn't be able to or can't really identify as a Christian and so shouldn't be able to, um, you know, welcome people at the door because that's representative of the church or of the faith more generally. So he believed, obviously, this some kind of IQ prerequisite, apparently, to be able to accept the gospel. And so really, that was the first moment for me that I went, well, what is a Christian response to disability if a minister can argue that uh, the gospel is for everyone except for these people over here who don't have a high enough IQ uh, to actually respond to the gospel. So that was uh, a really significant moment for me. So I literally thought I would write my honours thesis one year, fast track onto a PhD, leave the topic of disability behind, you know, 20-ish years later, still here in the world of disability. God obviously had different plans. Um, I just never left this topic. And I think because the more I studied in the Bible, the more I felt like it was uh, a topic that wasn't being addressed enough. You know, you pick up most academic commentaries, you won't read the word disability in there at all, uh, despite the large number of occurrences of disability that are in our biblical texts. Um, but it was also the experiences of people with disability that I met, people being on the margins of church communities or feeling completely excluded from church communities because of the experience of disability. So just really feeling like I wanted to do what I could to advocate in that space. But the reality is too, disability is inevitable. We treat it like it's this marginal thing that happens over here away from everyone else or those are those people with disability over there and we are the rest of the able-bodied community here and it actually doesn't work like that at all and because of its inevitability you know the experience of disability has become closer to home uh, for us again uh, over the years. So we have a 15-year-old daughter who's on the autism spectrum um, but even for myself, when I gave birth to my daughter, I, my pelvis was quite significantly damaged, which means I do use a walking stick at times. Uh, but this year I had a significant heart condition, which has left me 
uh, with problems with my heart and my respiratory functioning, uh, which has completely turned my world upside down. So while the experience of disability was once uh, one sort of step removed in my husband's family, it's, uh, you know, that lived experience has really shifted for me over this last 12 months in particular. And I think um, we'd love to unpack more of the um, the work that you've done in trying to equip churches to prevent um, that awful story about what happened to your brother-in-law, John, um, happening again and trying to equip churches to be inclusive of all, all members of the body of Christ. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to that um, soon. But I just wanted to ask how, given you've been doing this academic work for some time, how that personal experience of uh, differing types of your own limitation and disability, how, how has that shaped your academic work? Yeah, I guess for me, it's always been a combination. I feel for me, it's really important to have that academic uh, work combined with what I'm doing in a practical way. So I've always been involved in different kinds of disability ministry in the church. Uh, I, I feel like what I do in the experience of, you know, um, friendships with adults with intellectual disabilities, for example, shapes what I do in academia. I think it's one thing to write about it. It's another thing altogether to actually be in the real life circumstances of families and individuals who live this on a, on a daily basis. And so for me, it's important not just to sit in the academic space of writing about the experiences of, you know, people with disability 2000 years ago without trying to make an attempt, um, you know, to, to try and, uh, you know, connect that with the real life situation now. And I guess it helps to put yourself in that situation that you're not just reading a random text around, um, uh, you know, that that's not a real life person, but you're actually in when reading historical accounts, reading genuine circumstances of people who lived with disability in their own time and faced certain challenges or struggles. So I think it helps to import that real life situation when you're doing that academic work. Um, but there's also something really uh, yeah, something really important, I think, about doing academics in a way that will help inform practice, because I think that changes the way that you um, read the text, because you're not just coming up with an academic theory, you're trying to understand a text so that you can apply it in a real life context. And so there's all sorts of academics that exist for its own purposes but it wouldn't actually work in a real life scenario. So trying to actually understand biblical texts with a good academic framework, but in a way that's going to make sense and impact the real life experiences of people with church, you know, in churches uh, today, in the world today, who are living with disability. So I hope they both inform each other, the academics and the and the practical work. Uh, people sometimes use that term pracademic, you know, that idea of it being a combination of, of academics and practical ministry. Pracademic is a new one to me. I love that. Um, <laughs> I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about in terms of thinking about your academic work and thinking about biblical texts, how we read them sort of through a lens of disability studies. Mm. Um, how, how do you sort of articulate that? What's your sort of methodological way into approaching texts and looking for themes of disability? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think the biblical studies began really with looking for very overt examples of disability and trying to understand them within that ancient context. But but even so, even doing that, uh, 
you know, it was quite unusual when I was first uh, first working in biblical studies and disability because uh, the experience that I noticed is that most people either just skip over references to disability, they don't actually sit and pay attention to what might be going on in the text, uh, the way that the issue of disability might be uh, key in a narrative. Um, or the other thing that people often do is turn it into a metaphor or an allegory. And so disability is often kind of seen as a metaphor for sinfulness, for example. Uh, so that's how people read it without actually spending the time to do a nuanced reading and try and actually grapple with the presentations of disability that might be in a particular biblical text. Um, so I guess, you know, one of the things that I talked about in my PhD, uh, which was eventually published through Morzebeck, is that um, I, it, I guess it's not so much about employing a new methodological approach. It's a fairly traditional biblical studies approach, but it's about trying to foreground the issue of disability without just skipping over it or giving it, um, you know, an unreflected, unnuanced understanding. So actually trying to spend the time in understanding why is this reference to disability here? But I do think it's expanded over the last few years. It's not even just here's an overt example or reference to someone who is blind or lame, but looking further to try and understand the way that the body is represented more broadly in biblical texts and the way that the experience of non-traditional bodies or um, bodies that differ from uh, what's accepted, what that might actually tell us when we see that presented in biblical texts. So when we see a body with disability or when we see a body with chronic illness or a body that doesn't look like what we expect it to uh, or what they would have expected it to in the ancient context and what that might tell us. So just what, what were the expectations of the body in general and how might this body differ from those standard expectations? So biblical studies and disabilities kind of broadened in that respect. So not as narrow as just here's one reference to someone who's blind or lame, but it's, um, it's bigger and a bit more complex than that now. And what's useful is I think... Um, you know, Steph, you said at the beginning, I think we we start often with an experience of disability that leads us into disability studies in the Bible. Um, but I think when you recognise uh, how important disability themes are in biblical texts, the hope really is that it won't just be people who have a personal experience of disability, but that will go, oh, wow, this is actually a really significant topic throughout scripture. And it does tell us something about our expectations of the body, uh, might challenge some of our expectations of the body, which then is hopefully applicable to everyone, not just people like me who have a vested interest in wanting to understand this topic. So, Louise, you've you've mentioned that from from a, a framework of disability and what people might expect uh, in it, within the text. Um, certainly, we have examples in our biblical text of um, the disciples, for example, expect uh, that the man born blind is is blind because of some form of sin, etc. Mm. Um, but outside of the biblical text, in in the ancient world, how? have you found that disability was being treated uh, and um, what were the understandings uh, therein? Mm. Yeah, so I started really looking at that Greco-Roman background to the biblical text uh, to try and set the scene. Uh, you know, I think for a lot of us who read the Bible, we read it without all of that context. We read it without knowing all of that, um, what was happening in the ancient world or what ancient texts were like. And so this is only our, our only examples of reading 
um, stories about someone with a disability from the ancient world, for example. So I felt like setting the scene well with the Greco-Roman background um, and, you know, the Jewish world uh, as a way of introducing the topic of disability in the in the New Testament was kind of really key for me. Uh, so I think what we see in the Greco-Roman world is, again, the stereotypes. It's, oh, everyone with a disability was marginalised. It would have been horrific for every person with a disability. And it's not quite as straightforward as that. You know, it's we have a lot of references to disability, uh, you know, kind of anecdotally in papyri, in letters, in inscriptions. Uh, we do have it in uh, written texts uh, as well. So there are lots of examples of disability. Um, but I think people's experiences vary. I think in the ancient world, the, the family was the, the, you know, the primary core of your life. And so if you had a disability, it was your family who cared for you, um, not, you know, government payouts and so on. So you worked together as a unit to be able to, to do what you needed to do. For that reason, someone with a disability would have probably still tilled the ground, you know, um, you know, served in the markets. If you were an artisan with a physical disability, you could still sit there and make shoes or build other things. Uh, I, I think disability would have been quite visible in the ancient world. People would have seen people with disabilities all the time because you think about accidents, diseases, you know, things that would have happened that don't have the same medical cures then as we have now. So I think there would have been a lot of people with disability. It would have been a normal part of seeing that as you walked through the marketplace or, um, you know, around the temples, for example. Um and I think they just would have got on with life as much as possible in the context of their own disability with the support of their family. And I think that's a lot of what we see in our ancient sources about disability. However, I think it gets to the point where someone can't work in the field or can't sell their goods in a marketplace or when they're not able to do the things that their society expects of them. So for women, you know, you're expected to marry and give birth. You're not able to do those things. Then I think it starts to become a problem for someone. Or, you know, you can't serve in the military or serve your civic duties as a male. I think that's where it would have really started to impede it on um, people's functioning in society. And I think that then we see examples of people being marginalised um, and, uh, you know, really left on the outer. And I think it's those people who couldn't just get on with their lives, who were on the margins of Greco-Roman society, I think those are the people that we actually see depicted in the Gospels. A lot of the time it's these people who are marginalised because of their disabilities but that doesn't mean every person with a disability was marginalised. And I, I think it's helpful to kind of distinguish those things and we don't do that enough when we read the biblical texts. So I hear people say things like, um, well, you know, the, the example there of the man born blind in John 9, he was a beggar because what else could you do if you were blind in the ancient world? Well, that's not actually what our Greco-Roman sources tell us. There are examples of people who were blind in different kinds of um, fields, you know, doing different sorts of things. So it's a stereotype because we're not familiar with that Greco-Roman background. So I think it's mixed. There was still uh, an understanding people would get on with their lives if they could, but there was an extent to which someone might have been marginalised because they didn't meet society's expectations. But there was also a belief in the beautiful body in the Greco-Roman world, and so if you deviated from that, if you weren't symmetrical, if you weren't beautiful, um, 
there was obviously a lot of derision and mockery of people that we see in our ancient sources as well because of disability. So it's not to say they're all loved and accepted and everything was wonderful and peachy, but I think there was an extent that people just kind of got on and did things the best that they could within, um, yeah, within their own context and as a result of their own particular disability. Louise, something that's come up um, sometimes in in the ways that people read, particularly the gospel text, but um, I, I understand it's more broad than that, is the kind of moral freighting to that that observation of deviance. So, mm. wondering if you could unpack a little bit about, um, well, was there this divine overlay to that in 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 the Greek Roman world, um, and what were the kinds of things that people would assume about someone if they had a disability then? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of the Greco-Roman world, that's absolutely the case. You know, there was certainly a sense in which people might have had a disability because it was divine punishment. Uh, it, they could have believed that someone had a, a disability because someone had put the evil eye on them and they'd been cursed, for example. Um, so there were these spiritual powers that might have been at work um, causing people's disability. That's certainly uh, certainly the case. And I think um, that had an influence on um you know, as well as some of our Jewish background as well, which I think we'll probably get to after this in a moment. But the the idea that uh, some people would look at a disability and try and work out, understand what dis, what you know, sin, what uh, what was it that someone committed that might have led to this particular disability. So I think that that is there, and I think the fact that John in John's gospel, in this story of Jesus with the man born blind, the fact that Jesus kind of refutes this uh, discussion, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind, and Jesus is like, uh, no, that's not the way this conversation works. Uh, it's about, you know, God being at work. Um, I think shows us how prevalent those views really were amongst the disciples, amongst their peers in that time, that there was almost a one-to-one -one correspondence. If you did this scene, uh, then this is a kind of disability that you might end up with, for example. Uh, so I think it definitely existed in the Greco-Roman world. Um, yeah. Would you tell us about um, maybe a sort of a story that you find particularly interesting that you looked at in your um thesis it's been published as a book uh perhaps that kind of particularly was intriguing and sort of different dynamics of disability in the text yeah okay wow there's lots of different things um look I I really love the story of the woman with bleeding um and so that is one of those passages I don't think people jump to immediately when they think about a disability context and that was part of the reason I actually chose that because I wanted to try and expand people's understanding or concept of what disability actually is um you know for a woman who had long-term bleeding the stigma associated with her condition would have been significant uh and I think when you read most of the commentaries on the woman with bleeding uh it's the focus is the purity element of this so she was ritually unclean she shouldn't have been in the crowd um, but my experience of the vast majority of male scholars who actually come to this passage go oh women's bleeding okay let's just quickly look at ritual purity and let's move along as fast as we can 
so they don't want to actually sit there in that text for any <laughs> extended period of time. So I think it's taken a lot of feminist scholars to really sit and wrestle with that text well. And so I'm very indebted to a lot of the, you know, great scholarly work that was done by feminists in this passage, um, you know, ahead of me looking at it. Um, you know, so the lens that I brought to it was, was disability, um, trying to understand that from a disability perspective and understand not her exclusion from society on the basis of ritual impurity, but on the basis of, you know, this stigma, this shame, the embarrassment perhaps of having this bleeding, even from a chronic illness perspective, if this woman had perpetual bleeding for 12 years, you know, it's it's likely she would have been very, very unwell, very tired, uh, you know, someone who lives now with chronic fatigue as a side effect of my heart and respiratory functioning, you know, that's it's hard to live when you are really exhausted all the time. And so I feel like this is something that woman would have experienced that you don't really hear the commentators talk about very much. Uh, the fact that it was 12 years probably meant that she was unable to bear children um, because it had gone on for so long. So I think there's a whole lot of social things that are going on that are not often picked up on. Um, what's really, really interesting in the text is that right at the beginning of this passage, you know, you get the inner thoughts of the woman in, in Mark's version anyway, where she says, you know, her desire in wanting to see Jesus is that she wants to be made whole. Uh, and so that Greek word sozo, um, so sometimes translated healed, um, but I think it's better to understand it as wholeness. She wants to be made whole. As she goes up into the crowd, she touches Jesus' robe, and it says that the flow of blood stopped at that point when she touches Jesus' cloak. But, you know, Jesus could have let her just go off through the crowd. Well, the bleeding stopped. That's all she needed, right? Um, but actually, I think he makes her publicly announce the fact that the bleeding stopped. He public, you know, makes her publicly announce that um, something significant has shifted in her body through her interaction with Jesus. And it's only after she publicly does this and he sort of makes um, uh, a comment about her faith that then Jesus says, your faith has made you whole, essentially, or again, we might um, we might translate it as your faith has healed you or your faith has saved you. But actually, it's at this point after the interaction with Jesus that I think she gets what it is that she's after. This point after the interaction with Jesus is when she's made whole, that same concept that she has in her mind right at the beginning of the passage. Not at the moment the bleeding stops. That's not when she's made whole. But after this dialogue that takes place with Jesus where she gets to publicly announce that that bleeding has stopped. Uh, and I think that's significant because I think what it shows to me in this passage is healing is more than just the physical curing that might take place in relation to a disability or an illness, but there is a social factor to that. And my take on the, on the reason that Jesus does this is because she carried this stigma, this shame, of the bleeding and being unclean for 12 years. But even if that bleeding had stopped, how do you publicly prove that you're better now after you don't there's no way for you to be declared publicly clean like a leper was when they went to the temple and they were declared clean she had no means of being declared clean i think part of what jesus does is make this social statement he announces to people essentially by making her speak up in the crowd 
that she has received a physical cure at the moment that she's actually touched Jesus. That's amazing. Um, but I think that goes towards her reconnection with society, this kind of social inter interaction um, that will take place as a result now of the fact that she's received this physical cure. So I think it's a really beautiful story because it tells us something about the physical side of disability, but it also tells us something about that social element. And, you know, if anyone who knows anything about disability theory um, and um, the idea of how we try and define or understand disability today recognises there is both of those things at play. There is an impairment in the body, but there is also this social world of a society that isn't set up to cater well for people with disabilities. So I think in this beautiful healing account, Jesus is addressing very clearly both of these elements, um, the physical cure, but also trying to help her bring down those barriers so that she can socially connect and participate once again because of that physical cure. Louise, um, something that as you were speaking, um, I wanted to hear more from you about is, yes, the experience of a disability um, changes depending on the social ecosystem that you are inhabiting. And you've unpacked a bit before about the Greco-Roman kind of, if you, were, if you were a person with disability in the Greco-Roman world, these are the kinds of things you'd come up against. How was that different in the Hebrew world? Um, and I imagine there might be points of difference, but you've mentioned some, um, the aspect of, you know, you've got um, ritual cleanness, um, but I'd like to hear more from you about, well, what are the, what were some of the narratives that would have been spoken um, explicitly or implicitly about or, or to someone with a disability? Mm. Yeah, so I think that there's obviously an overlap. There's a similarity. So I think um, for, for women in particular, that notion of childbearing as being um, a key uh, function or duty of someone as a woman. And as a result of that, uh, the inability to bear children was particularly disabling for people in the ancient world. And there's been some really good writing done on this topic. Um, uh, you know, Candida Moss, for example, um, Rebecca Raphael. There's a few different people who've talked about um, the experience of uh, barrenness and how disabling that condition would have been for women in the ancient world. So again, we don't talk about you know, barrenness or infertility now in terms of disability language, it's foreign to us. But you think about if this is your society's expectation of you as a woman uh, and you can't do that, then that is actually a very disabling condition. So no, it might not cause you physical pain. You might not have a limitation in terms of everyday activities. But if you can't meet your society's expectations of what you're supposed to do, then that is a particularly stigmatising and disabling condition to experience. So I think... Um, um, you know, for women, that's definitely a key one. And, and some of those scholars working, uh, you know, in detail in that area talk about it as being, you know, the most prevalent um, depiction of disability for women in the biblical texts overall. And so, again, it's, it's an area that's been under-researched, underwritten about, and the 
again, that social element of it, the stigma, the disenfranchisement, you know, you can't do what all of those other women around you, your age are, or the things that you're supposed to be doing. So would would have been particularly stigmatizing. I think what we see from the biblical texts um, from the Old Testament, you know, the, the key passage that comes to mind is Leviticus 21, which is a passage um, that limits the extent to which a Levitical priest with certain kinds of disability could participate in uh, the Israelite cult. So to what extent can they serve as a priest? Um, and then there's a list of particular conditions that are listed that might preclude someone from being able to do that. So there are limitations. It doesn't mean they can't be a priest at all. That's not actually what it says, but it does talk about some restrictions and limitations that are placed on someone with certain kinds of conditions. It's debated the extent um, that the particular conditions uh, have and why they are the particular conditions that that's there. A lot of scholars say that they're things that you can visually see on the body. So is it something about the visibility of something in the body that might be distracting to a congregant, you know, as these priests are serving in their capacity? That's one debate. Although the crushed testicles are the things that everyone throws everyone out. Wait, they're not going to be seeing that in the congregation. How can that be a factor here? Um, but, uh, you know, others would say it is still a factor. It's a visible thing, even if most people don't see that most of the time. So is there something about that idea of uh, wholeness and purity being represented in in physical wholeness and, um, you know, purity of the body? Because the next chapter then goes on to talk about, you know, blemishes in sacrifices, for example. So um, that's a key passage. So we, we see those kinds of limitations. Um, that are, well, those restrictions that are placed to some extent on Levitical priests. Um, but I, I think, you know, throughout the, the Old Testament, we, you know, we do also see a lot of passages that talk about, you know, making sure you're not putting a stumbling block in front of the blind or, you know, um, people like Job who are, you know, talk about the fact that they are guides to the blind, that they look after those with disabilities and those who are on the margins. So while we do also, we see, this concepts of uh, disability uh, that exist, we also see guidelines, you know, codified in Old Testament law about looking after people with disabilities and those who are marginalised in the community. I think that's one of the areas where your work really has had a, a big impact, uh, certainly, um, certainly from your own experience with your brother-in-law. Um, and and that engagement with disability in the church and in that, I, I guess it, we'd say the, the social model of disability uh, and thinking about what are the impacts there. Um, I, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more then about not just thinking about the social and or the medical model, but also the cultural model of disability, mm -hmm. thinking about um, how how do we see uh, disability work out, work its way out as um groups of people who we would consider um or who may consider themselves disabled gather together within uh, the gospel so I'm, uh, one of the, the things that comes to mind immediately is uh, the leper uh, concept of leper colonies and things like mm. that yeah, so I talked about the cultural model of disability uh, in my dissertation because I think we were I think we were trying to grapple with uh you know historians, 
wrestling with a concept of disability. So disability has always existed, but we're trying to understand ancient texts through modern definitions or modern models of disability. And so questions arise about the appropriateness of doing that. And so the cultural model was developed as a way of saying, actually, we um, we don't know for certain the exact lived experience of people with disability in the ancient world, but we can see the way they're depicted in our ancient texts, which tell us a lot about, you know, the values uh, of people with disability or the way that they're treated uh, because of the way that they're represented or the way that their body is represented as meeting or not meeting particular social norms. And I, I think the cultural model of disability then is helpful for us in recognising uh, we just have to approach historical text slightly differently than we do the experience of disability in the modern world. Part of that is recognising that every society and every culture has a different expectation of what the human body is and what it does and what it's supposed to do. And if we overlay our concepts of disability from our modern context, you know, from our modern Australian context in particular, we have really good funding, the NDIS system here, National Disability Insurance Scheme, other things that work to support people that didn't exist in the ancient world. So trying to understand what were the expectations of the body and in what ways did people's bodies meet or not meet those expectations. You know, so examples of that might mean, um, you know, we look at, at a really muscly body today in the modern world, or some people do, as particularly attractive, you know, very muscly man. In the ancient world, if you were particularly muscly, uh, it, it might have been that that was the case because you were involved in physical labour. That doesn't make you attractive. That makes you lower class. Uh, and so there is an association between large muscly men and lower class status, you know, because you're a labourer, you do physical manual labour. Uh, so that's an expectation of the body that is quite different to our expectation of the body. Um, you know, if you live in a in a society where there's some cultures where smell is kind of the, the most important sense that you can have in your society. There are some cultures that, you know, taxonomize their world based on different kinds of scents in the year. In that society, if you can't smell, obviously, that's going to be the most disabling condition you could possibly have. So when we're approaching biblical texts, any ancient texts, trying to look at them within their cultural context and understand what were the expectations of the body for that particular culture and how might this person's body meet or not meet, that I think is really key to the cultural model of disability. What that means then is there wasn't this term like disability which is an overarching term um, that covers, you know, this really vast variety of experiences of disability, people who are blind, uh, you know, as well as people who might uh, be hearing impaired, who might, you know, others who have mental illness all come under the same umbrella for us in the modern world. So we, there's some questions about how we do that when we're looking at ancient texts. But even in ancient texts, we do see people with different kinds of disability being grouped together in different contexts. So we see people, as you said, like the um, people who come together in a leper colony. That's a very classic example. But it's amazing how often you read language where different kinds of disability are grouped together. So the blind and the lame, the blind and the deaf, you know, they're labels we read over and over throughout 
the prophetic sources of the Old Testament. And obviously in our New Testament texts, in the Gospels, these are people who are always grouped together. I think this shared experience of marginalisation is quite key um, in, in bringing people together, even though they had all these very different kinds of conditions. So it does tell us something about... Um, uh, about the experiences, as I said before, I think if you can get on with your life, that's great. But if you couldn't uh, and you were marginal, I think there is then this linking together of these marginal kind of characters that we see, um, you know, as outliers uh, in the background of, you know, gospel texts or other ancient sources. Thanks so much, Louise. And it seems that um, one of the big um, subversive narratives in in the New Testament is um, the banquet. And I know that you've done a lot of work on on that particular um, narrative. And I just wanted to hear from you, how does that subvert those um, those expectations about what it is to be uh, part of God's people mm. um, and and what that means for how we can be challenged in how inclusive we are in our church communities? Mm. Well, I'd, I'd just like to say it's dangerous territory to ask me about this passage, Steph, because I could talk about it for a really, really long time. Come on, uh, we're but... ready. <laughs> How long does the podcast go for? Um, yeah, I'll try and keep it brief, shall I? Uh, I? I was really drawn to this passage. So uh, obviously wanting to write about disability in the Gospels, this seemed like a really natural place to start. What, what was really interesting was as I was just starting my research on my PhD, I was invited to um, a church to actually preach um, and uh, I spoke on this passage and someone came up to me at the end and said, Oh, this disability inclusion stuff, you know, that's all really nice, but you can't actually apply this passage to disability inclusion because it's clearly not actually about people with like real life disabilities. Like it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for the experiences of the Gentiles being brought into um, into God's people. So you can't actually talk about the experiences of people with actual disabilities. Um, so I was really challenged by that as I began my research. It was really helpful as to keep poking me as, as I was researching to go, what kind of evidence is there that this person is right or perhaps not right? So I started, I, I just started with looking at banqueting culture in the ancient world. That's really where I began to try and understand the banquet more generally, that this kind of interaction between people with disabilities or, you know, Jesus' discussion of people with disabilities might make sense. You know, is it just anecdotal that it, and it just coincidence that it happens at a banquet or is there something bigger going on? And, and so I was quite intrigued as I began to read about banqueting culture to read all of these stories from the ancient world um, where people with disabilities were actually present at banquets, but they were only ever present as the servers, you know, bringing in plates of food to invited guests or as the entertainers who would, um, you know, dance or sing or, um, you know, do um, kind of the work of a court jester to entertain those who had been genuinely invited to banquets. Over and over again, these references came up and I thought, well, that's quite fascinating, isn't it? And I started to explore the artwork of the ancient world. And again, you see these images of people with disability being portrayed as servants and as entertainers at banquets. Um, and I just found that quite fascinating imagery to, to think about the flip then that takes place in Luke 14, where 
Jesus talks about people who are the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame, not just being entertainers, not just being the servants to those who are genuinely invited, but becoming recipients of inv inv invitations themselves to actually participate in that banquet themselves. And I think we've read that so often, you know, as people in churches, we know this passage so well, but I think we miss how shocking that would have actually been to its first century audience that Jesus is pushing back against banqueting culture in the here and now to say, do not invite those who are your social peers, but invite those who would never normally even be on your radar. Those are the people you should be having meals at. That's shocking enough in itself. Um, you know, and as you read through this passage, it starts off in this physical, why are you taking the places of honour? Why are these people even here? You should be having the marginalised here that you're dining with. You feel this kind of palpable tension in the passage and you have someone at the dinner table go, right, well, won't it be wonderful when we feast together in the new kingdom? Like, let's change the topic here, shall we? But Jesus doesn't let it lie and then moves into this parable of the banquet and the story of the banquet host sending out invitations. Um, you know, but what I love about the two stories that go together then is Luke 14 is, you know, on one hand, you've got Jesus saying, you need to change current practice. You need to change what you're doing so that the marginalized are here in your communities in the everyday. But then this second story, this parable about the banquet is about inviting those who are marginalized to participate in the eschatological banquet, in the future banquet, in the heaven, you know, in heaven as the people of God. So he's got both this physical here and now concept in mind, as well as these marginalized people being recipients of the gospel message so that they too can be the people of God. So it's a really powerful passage. It's not good enough just to be sharing the gospel with people. That's great. Uh, but part of the reality that lived experience now for believers in this world is you, you need to change what you do to be modelling that future kingdom in the here and now and make sure you're giving precedence to those that our society might normally overlook, forget, neglect, and sadly, sometimes our churches do the same. So Jesus is challenging both of those things, current practice and the way the gospel message might actually go out. That emphasis on not just uh, saying, oh, that's a metaphor, we'll just kind of breeze past that is so important. Um, but at the same time, I was wondering if I could ask you about uh, the way that some metaphors function that kind of trade on dynamics mm. of disability, um, particularly the way that they're used to express um, sort of knowledge or understanding. Um, mm. So thinking about having ears to hear, that sort of thing. And just wondering, kind of what do you think it looks like to read those, those sorts of metaphors well within devotional communities? How do you sort of tend to approach passages like that? Yeah, I, I, thank you. That's a good question. Going back to Luke 14 for a moment, what is helpful about that is that I think it um, it sort of defies that metaphor in some sense. In the scholars that I read who said, oh, this is clearly a metaphor for Gentiles being brought into the community of God. Um, you know, nowhere in the Old Testament is there a precedence for using uh, disability language as a, being applied to Gentile people. It, it doesn't exist in the Old Testament. It's not like this metaphor that every Jewish person knew that it was the Gentiles who were blind and lame, for example. Uh, so we've got no grounds upon which to, to say that this was a clear metaphor for people for Gentiles. But you're right in saying what we do have in our biblical text is metaphorical language, disability metaphorical language to, uh, to talk about, you know, the 
people of God, perhaps when they're listening well to God, that they have listening ears, for example, or if they're not listening, that they might be, you know, deaf and mute to God's call to their behaviour, for example. Um, and that disability language is really, really tricky. You know, I think we have to accept it's there in our biblical texts. But I want to always tell people to be very careful in the way that we use it and, and so to not to continue to perpetuate that language. I think we have to read it within its ancient context. Uh, some scholars will say, oh, the Bible is horrible about disability because it uses these metaphors. But I think we have to accept that these are ancient texts and those kind of metaphors were acceptable in their context. But it doesn't mean we have to perpetuate them and continue to use them. So I, I always cringe when I sing Amazing Grace. I've got to say, I always stop at the, I was blind, but now I see. I can't I was just I can't thinking sing. about yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't sing that line. So I don't like to sing those lines about um yeah disability language being uh, used metaphorically like that so I think it's helpful to recognize it's there it was acceptable in its social context um but I think we have to avoid using it in worship music in our sermons in the way that we kind of yeah, do it in uh devotional readings or, or whatever else kind of challenge that use because what happens is often it does get weaponized against people with disability whether that's intentional or not I can be very well-meaning but uh, what I see is is uh, you know, the assumption that comes across is you wouldn't ever want to be blind. So why would you ignore God's call and be blind to or be deaf to God's message? You know, the worst thing that you could be is to be deaf, essentially, is what comes across when you make statements like that, which is really hurtful for people with disabilities. You know, if you're sitting there in the sermon and this is what it's about and that's your experience of disability, you know, you, you can only imagine, uh, you know, what must be going on for someone in that in that context. And I have literally sat through sermons with people who are, you know, vision impaired, who are deaf as this kind of sermon is coming down and it's incredibly awkward. Um, so I think we have to be careful in the way that we talk about that language and recognising that it's there. Um, yeah, and how we might apply that to real life scenarios now. So we're not listening to God or we're ignoring God. Let's use that very overt language when we talk about the experience of God rather than talking about people being deaf or mute uh, to God speaking to them today. But that also comes down to, again, I think often I hear that too in when people are uh, preaching on the gospel healing narratives and thinking about things like uh, people being marginalised and everyone was marginalised with a disability it comes down to those stereotypes again too because people do talk about it. These are the worst kind of experiences you could possibly have and everyone with a disability was marginalised. Uh, I think we fall into those traps simultaneously of metaphorical language because we assume that disability is the worst experience anyone possibly could have had in the ancient world. So why would you... Um, yeah, why would you want to be that? Don't be that. So we're coming from a framework when we use those metaphors of disability equals bad, you know, and so we want to try and I think nuance those discussions a little bit as we have opportunity to do that and, and to speak differently about those passages, I guess. Yeah, thanks, Louise. I, I think this is one of those areas where I, I, I suspect a lot of people listening to this will be quite shocked if they haven't heard this before uh you know certainly from um hearing about your uh, brother-in-law's experience of being excluded from uh serving uh, at church uh and then yeah uh hearing people preaching about these sort of things i personally i heard a sermon years ago uh 
as an Advent sermon on Isaiah 44 and the seventh songs, 43 and 44, uh, where, with the, they, um, the, the passage in 44, 18, where their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see. Um, and it was specifically addressing um, the fact that uh, people who have, who are blind, it is causative. Um, you know, this was very much a, an approach that blind people cannot see the gospel, um, mm. which was quite, yeah, I mean, quite, I think quite damaging in a lot of ways. Um, so with that in mind, I, I guess, what, what are the, um, what, what are the engagements that you would like to see the church do? I know you've had a lot to do uh, with uh, advocating um, in uh, Sydney, where you are. Um, what are the what are the areas where you, you'd like to really see good engagement in this space? Um, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, as I said early on, I think disability is an inevitable experience, but we treat it in society and in our churches like it's this marginal thing that happens over there away from everyone else. And while we treat it like that, uh, it means that we have no impetus to go and do a great deal about it because we think it's rare. You know, we might have someone who comes to our church with a disability. If we ever do, I'm sure we'll be welcoming. These are things that I've heard from church leaders over the years. Uh, I'm sure we would be welcoming if we actually had someone with a disability. But that comes from a framework of assuming that it's it's rare, you, you don't already have people with disabilities in your churches. It fails to recognise, you know, the current Australian stats are nearly 18% of the Australian population have some kind of a disability. So that is... Uh, you should already have a significant number of people with disabilities in your church. And if you don't, there is a problem because you are not reflective of the society around you, if that's actually the case. You know, the other stat that's really interesting is, um, you know, there uh, in societies like Australia, where we have uh, an average lifespan over 75, there's an expectation that the average person will spend over eight years of their life with some kind of a disability. Uh, and so whether that's just the, you know, diminishing vision and hearing that might happen as you age, or whether that's an accident or illness like mine that's led to a disability, disability is inevitable. And if it's not in your own body, it will be your spouse, your parents, your children. It is absolutely inevitable that you'll encounter disability. But we don't do ministry like disability is inevitable. We don't do ministry like we are expecting people with disability to be part of what we do. We treat it like this anomaly, there might be someone, you know, I once met someone's cousin's friend's uncle, you know, like it's this thing that's far away, rather than an ever-present reality as part of our church communities. So I think we need to shift our framework, you know, as churches to recognise the inevitability of disability uh, and to be thinking intentionally about the things that we do or don't do that keep barriers in place that prevent people with disability from being able to participate and engage with church communities. So if we, we may not mean to, we might not even be aware that we're doing it, but often as church communities, we have practices that, that exclude people with disabilities, whether that is, you know, we run all the women's Bible studies during the day. Uh, and so you know, you might not be able to, um, or there are women's houses that have stairs and no ramps. And so if you're a wheelchair user, you can never get to those groups or, you know, whether it is 
uh, everything is done verbally and someone who has, you know, um, auditory processing, for example, or other kinds of learning difficulties or autism might have trouble trying to keep up with everything that's particularly verbal. So that people aren't intentionally trying to exclude people with disability, but because it's not on their radar, they don't think about the processes and the things that they do that might inadvertently exclude people or, or um, make it harder. And so, you know, I talk about it in terms of barriers. Are we keeping those barriers up? Are we perpetuating those barriers? Or as church communities, are we actively working to reduce and remove those barriers to participation? You know, my experience through COVID lockdowns was, um, you know, some really positive things came out about the experiences of people with disability in that time. The online church made a huge difference for some people, not everyone with a disability, I want to make that clear. You know, for my daughter with autism, online church was amazing for her because she could be at home in an environment where she's comfortable. She's got a condition that means she can't moderate her own body temperature. So here she was at, at home in an environment that is the right temperature for her. The lights are right for her. She's got volume control. And then we could pause it whenever she wanted to ask a question to clarify something. And she could actually listen and concentrate so much better than she could in a church building where it's noisy, you know, the lights aren't quite right, there's too many people. Um, and so there was something positive that came out of that for her in, in being online. I spoke to a lot of mums with children with disabilities in that season who had experienced some stigma with, you know, not being able to get to Bible studies or not being able to get to Bible studies regularly, um, you know, that people would say, oh, you should really be able to come every week. Suddenly having online Bible study meant that the women in their groups could actually get a window into the life experiences of these mums with disability who could see them still trying to wrangle their kids, you know, at seven o'clock when Bible study starts, shoving them with their medication, trying to get them up to bed, taking them back up 50 times, whatever it is. You know, other mums suddenly went, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry, because I didn't actually realise how complex your life is with a child with a disability. Um, and it was seeing that little window in their life through Zoom that they actually understood for the first time some of those challenges that a mum a mom might understand. And I know I've experienced that for myself as well. I tried to join a Bible study group a few years ago uh, and my pelvic injury was quite bad at the time, but I was told I could only come to the Bible study group if I could promise that I would be there every single Tuesday night. Uh, and if I couldn't commit to being there every Tuesday night, then uh, I couldn't be part of the group. And so my injury was that I couldn't commit to being there every Tuesday night. And so I wasn't able to, to join that. And I think there's great sorrow in that for me, because I miss out on the community of those women. There's great sorrow you know, for them, because I didn't get to go and participate with them and contribute to those Bible studies. But just that misunderstanding of the limitations that go with disability or chronic health, that I would say, I would want to say, I recognise those things that are in place there. Please come when you can, because we'd love to see you whenever you're able to get there, rather than, sorry, that's it. These are the rules for the way church practice works. And if you can't meet them, that's it. And so we we're not being intentional in trying to cut out people with disability, I think, most of the time, but we do put these barriers up or we keep them up when 
those are so easy to pull down. These are just things that we've developed. These are not hard and fast rules about biblical doctrine. This is just culture. This is church practice that we've just gotten so used to. We think it has to be done like this. And so I think we need to ask questions of the way we do things where we might be inadvertently, accidentally putting things in place that might prevent people with disabilities or their families being able to yeah, be, be a meaningful part of a church community, to belong, to serve, to be served, you know, to be loved by others um, instead of actually being left out and feeling alone and excluded from the church. Louise, thank you so much for the work that you are doing to equip the church to be the body in all its wonderful diversity. Um, I know that I've really benefited from reading that resource that you mentioned, um, that um, the Sydney Anglican um, Diocese commissioned. Um, but thank you so much for speaking with us today um, and thank you for all the work you are doing um, to make sure that we are being the body that we are meant to be. Well, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate your time and your willingness to focus on the topic of disability for this series as well.